Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Dr. Nell Painter is a force to be reckoned with. A leading historian, she is the Edwards Professor of American History Emerita, Princeton University. In addition to earning her Ph.D. from Harvard, she has received honorary doctorates from Wesleyan, Dartmouth, Yale, SUNY New Paltz, and has held fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and has served as the president of the Organization of American Historians and the Southern Historical Association. She's also a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. An award-winning scholar and author, Nell's acclaimed works of history include Standing in Armageddon, Sojourner Truth, and the New York Times bestselling The History of White People. But her most recent book is all about second chapters. Old in Art School, a memoir of starting over, chronicles her return to the classroom as an undergrad to study painting, following her retirement from Princeton. Nell enrolled at Mason Gross School of the Arts at Rutgers, where she received a BFA and went on to get her master's in fine art at the Rhode Island School of Design. Her work has been shown at numerous galleries and collections, including the San Angelos Museum of Fine Art, the Brooklyn Historical Society, and Gallery of Thero. Let's meet and get to know scholar, historian, educator, author, artist, class act, Nell Painter. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Sandy. That was fabulous. Wow. Well, you're fabulous. <laughs> I just copy what I read. Anyway, let's start way, way back. When you were growing up, did history mean something to you? Uh, yes and no. Um, I grew up in Oakland, California. I grew up in a left-leaning family. Uh, my parents were originally from uh, Houston, Texas, and they married young, and they shared the the determination to get out of Texas. <laughs> and they never, they never. Well, one time, uh, my fa- I went with my father home to his hometown town of Spring, Texas, when I was a kid. But, you know, I wasn't one of those kids who got sent back to the South in the summer. No. So as I was growing up and until I was in graduate school, until I could actually write history, I thought American history was at best extremely partial and at worst a pack of lies. Huh. So... Uh, I was not um, enamored of uh, American history. I started really liking history when I did junior year abroad in France, and I was very curious about French history and African history when I lived in, in Ghana. So my first attraction to history came through other people's history, which felt, it may not have been, but it felt less weighted. You just threw out that you lived in Ghana. Why did you live in Ghana? My parents and I went to make the African Revolution. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Don't you know? Yeah. What year was that? 64 to 66. Now that must have been a hell of an experience for you. It really was. If I am at all sane, and sometimes I'm not sure, (laughs) it's because I lived in Ghana. Because Living in a racist culture will drive you crazy. And I got out uh, young enough to reshape 
how I saw the world, how I asked questions. So the issues of, say, economic development that appeared to me in Ghana couldn't appear to me so clearly in an economic sense in the United States because the way I saw the world was so influenced by questions of race. Remember, I came of age during the 1950s, so I grew up in segregated America. Right. So that version of American history, kind of Cold War history, is very different from the history that I learned to actually write myself in the 1970s and that I can continue to write or draw later on in the 20th century and in the 21st century. So things have changed. I can say now that I love history. I use history in a very different way as an artist in comparison to the way I used it as a scholar. In either case, I really love history. I, I want to still focus on your youth because this fascinates me. First of all, what did your parents do? My father, for uh, decades, was the chief technician of chemistry in the College of Chemistry at the University of California, Berkeley. So I grew up on the on the campus, and Berkeley was the only place I wanted to go to college, and that's where I went. My mother got her career late. She was educated. My parents <laughs> fell in love at first sight in their college library. So I say I come by my bookishness very honestly. Uh, I am third generation college. My grandfather was a college professor in New Orleans who married one of his stunningly beautiful students. Being educated was normal, natural to me in my growing up. My mother finally did get uh, a career after segregation kind of broke down and I know I'm talking about California, but there was segregation in California. So my mother, as an educated black woman, really the, her possibilities opened up dramatically uh, after the late 60s. And she joined the administration of the Oakland Public Schools, and she was hiring and firing public school teachers when she when she retired in the 1980s and started writing books. But you know, Nell, as you're talking and the research that I did about you, what becomes so much more pronounced is how much material you had to mine. There was so much for you out there, for what you were exposed to, who your family was, where they took you, what you did, where you lived. I have been and remain extremely grateful. So you go to Berkeley and... You decide to major in history and you continue. No, 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 no. I didn't major in history. I majored in anthropology. And then what happened to you in terms of going on to school and your graduate degrees? So I graduated in honors in anthropology and uh, I joined my parents who were in Ghana at the time. I taught French in Ghana, I taught French to telephone operators so that they could answer the phone when the Organization of African Unity met in Accra. Oh, wow. And I started graduate school there in African history, pre-colonial African history. And then there was a coup d'etat. So everything changed after the coup d'etat, and all of us left-wing African Americans had to leave. 
Um, not everybody left, but a lot of people left, including us. I continued my graduate studies at UCLA, um, and I got a master's degree in African history. I wasn't quite sure what to do. I ended up sort of taking shelter in a in a doctoral program at Harvard. So I got my Harvard um, PhD in 1974. I was totally loose in the sense that I sort of skated around. I went to Harvard to study African history, but I got there before the African historian. And by that time, what could be seen as American history had changed from what it was when I was in high school or an undergraduate at Berkeley. And it was really interesting. So I ended up in U.S. history. And then how did you wind up at Princeton? Um, my first job was at the University of Pennsylvania, where I started as an assistant professor. In three years, my book came out. My first book was Exodusters. Got very good reviews. Um, so I was tenured and promoted in three years. And uh, then I had a fellowship in the National Humanities Center in North Carolina. I was invited to visit for a year at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And then I was offered a full professorship. So in three years, I went from being an assistant professor to being a full professor. And then after the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I went to Princeton as a full professor. Good grief, Nell. You have lived virtually everywhere, here as well as abroad. I mean, how rich yeah. all that is. I think it's really important, Sandy, for well, here I'll say Americans, but it's probably true for everybody that living outside the place you grow up in, living outside your own country, it's a privilege, but it's also almost a responsibility to see the world through other people's eyes and to see that the the little world that you grow up in and what you're used to and the questions and and the answers are only a part of what, well, what humanity has to offer. You have written a series of books. What made you write Standing in Armageddon or Sojourner Truth? You obviously felt that you had something to say, but it's more than that, isn't it? When I started writing books, the first book was my dissertation. I was in graduate school because I love to read. And then, okay, so you read for a while, and then you need to write a dissertation. Well, I love to write too, so I wrote a dissertation. Okay, and then now you turn your dissertation into a book, and Alfred A. Knopf was interested in it and published it. Uh, my second book was actually an oral um, biography of a black communist, and I was just really interested in the life of a man who joined the Communist Party in Alabama Holy in God. 1931. My curiosity about him, but mostly I wanted to know, I was a Southern historian, and I wanted to know about urban Southern history, which at the time was very understudied. And this man who happened to be a communist, for me, the important part was that he was a steel worker in Birmingham, Alabama. So it really was, tell me about Southern urban history. So that was uh, my second book. My third book was Standing in Armageddon, which was first commissioned as part of a series of books. And my slice in this 
series was the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And I was really interested in it because uh, in the 80s when I wrote it, it seemed like the questions of that era of plutocracy, those questions were really pertinent in the 1980s. But as our our future has unrolled, it becomes even more and more pertinent. So it's still in print and people still read it and still find parallels with our own time. The next book was Sojourner Truth, A Life, a Symbol. Uh, Sojourner Truth, who was a feminist abolitionist in the 19th century, I was intrigued by the the seeming uh, contradiction between what we knew or what we thought we knew of her words, which seemed to be very uh, fiery, and her image. She had her photographs taken, and the photographs are basically a bourgeoise uh, sitting very nicely dressed, holding her knitting or holding a photograph of her grandson. So who was this woman, I asked myself. And uh, so the, my book is called Sojourner Truth, A Life, A Symbol. So I talk about her life as she lived it in the 19th century, and then what we have made of her. And it turns out that the the utterance associated with her aren't I a woman or ain't I a woman. Neither one was, is something she said. Somebody else put that in her mouth. Whoa. Yeah, because we needed a black woman who was an abolitionist and a feminist. We needed a black woman uh, who stood up against slavery. It turns out that she was a black woman who was anti-slavery and who was feminist, but she was much, much more than that. And so you were able to flush her out more than had been done in the past. Yes, and to make the contrast between her life as she lived it, 1797 to 1883, and then the myth, uh, the figure that we have made of her in more than a century since her death. So it was the life and the symbol. Then talk to me about the history of white people. You know, I started that book at the turn of the 21st century when the Russians were bombing the heck out of Grozny and Chechnya, which is the Caucasus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we still read the New York Times, the actual paper. <laughs> and the front page of the paper was a photograph of bombed out Grozny. It looked like Berlin in, in 1945. So I'm thinking, why are white Americans called Chechens? You know, what's going on here? And that was the question that I started with. So I answered that pretty quickly in Germany. Uh, the answer lies in the research of a, a German scholar. But then the question is, how does it change over time? And I went frontwards and backwards and ended up with a long book that has 100 pages of footnotes. Because I knew that I would be subject to intense scrutiny. So that's, to me, a really great segue to move away from the history and move into the art. This is really fascinating. And I don't want to call this reinventing yourself, because that's not fair. You woke up one day and said, I want to be an artist. 
No, it was more gradual. Uh, I told you about Sojourner Truth's photographs. Mm -hmm. So Sojourner Truth didn't read and write. So I didn't have my usual historian's tools, that is to say, a written archive. And if I wanted to get to some kind of sense of herself as she saw herself, since I didn't have her writing her words, only what other people said she said, uh, she did control taking her own photographs, which she sold to support herself. So this was a one way, it was the main way for me to understand Sojourner Truth for herself. So I had to go give myself an education in what I learned to call the rhetoric of the image. Luckily, uh, I was at Princeton where I had access to a magnificent art history library. So I was able to um, school myself uh, in, in images and I just loved it. So after that, I found myself um, paying more and more attention to images and to enjoying it and asking myself if I wanted to go back to my childhood because my father taught me to draw and I drew all the time uh-huh. when I was a girl. I took a couple of introductory painting classes at Princeton, which I very much enjoyed. And then I took the drawing and painting marathon at the New York Studio School, which was five weeks, five days a week, uh, standing up, painting and drawing, unconditioned studios in lower uh, Manhattan to see if I really enjoyed the process and if I had the physical stamina, because I was getting to be an old lady by that time. (laughs) And yes, and yes, the studio school was simply studio. And I wanted more than that. I wanted art history. I wanted art criticism. I wanted all the intellectual apparatus around images as well. So that took me to Rutgers. And so that you were able to marry, again, like I said, the the historical with the... Say the intellectual. The intellectual. Because um, in my undergraduate and especially in my graduate study, I was... I was discouraged from using history or the enormous trove of subject matter and even of images to draw on. But um, I was dissuaded from doing that because, you know, there's nobody more academic than me. I am really an academic person even now. And (laughs) academic is just the wrong thing to be in art. Academics notwithstanding, there's also talent. And even though you referenced that you drew many years ago as a child, Mm -hmm. did you Mm -hmm. know you had talent? I discovered I didn't have talent when I was an Mm -hmm. undergraduate because I was was an undergraduate in art for a while at Berkeley. But I got a C in sculpture which I earned because I did not do any work. So, you know, I made a terrible piece of sculpture and I got a C. And I thought, stupidly, I thought, well, that proves I don't have enough talent. I thought when I was an undergraduate in the 60s that talent was everything. And if you had talent, you didn't really have to do any work. Drawing came very easily to me and I loved it. So there I... Uh, did all the work because I was having fun. 
sculpture did not come easily, and I didn't do any work, and I thought, well, I don't have enough talent. I was always a very good writer. Uh, I come from an academic family. I knew what to do. I could see my future in front of me as an academic, so that's the way I went then. As a historian and as a grown-up, I discovered that talent is really enjoying something long enough to get good at it. <laughs> so, oh, gosh. You know what, Nell? That should be needle-pointed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. I, who have no talent in that department, certainly appreciate those who do. And as you're talking about sculpture, I was thinking, so in other words, Louise Nevelson had nothing to worry about when it came to you, right? <laughs> what was the experience like for you, separate from being an older person, but what was that experience like then to go to RISD, to the Rhode Island School of Design? I know many people, good friends of mine who have been there, and I know some people who teach there. What uh-huh. was that like for you? Did you feel on some level, even though there's such a self-assuredness about you, but did you feel on some level that maybe you were taking your clothes off? That's a different way of putting it, but uh, it's kind of, yeah, 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 that's what I felt, sort of stripped down. It was totally humiliating. And for a long time there, and even a little bit afterwards, I was totally insecure. I was a pathetic little nub. I didn't know what I was doing was the right thing. I didn't know what was good art or bad art. I didn't know if my art was good. I didn't know what it was that I could do as an artist, that was my thing. I was just this sad little puppy, kind of. And I realized later that I never thought of myself as somebody who was full of herself. I I didn't think of myself as a diva or somebody who had to be told all the time that I was important. But when I was absolutely nobody, or even less than nobody, when I was the little old black lady, when I was the old lady, when I was nobody, when I was of no importance, whatever. Wow, that really hurt. I bet that was just eye-opening also. And I would have to assume that you share that in your book, Old in Art School, in terms of literally taking your clothes off about that. I didn't see it. that Actually, I did talk about my inability to literally take my clothes off because a couple of the women artists whom I admire, um, both of them are dead now, Alice Neal and Maria Lasnik, both of them painted themselves as older women, nude. I don't know that I could do that. And I suspect that being a black American woman in my generation is part of why I could not do that. So now take us to the fact that you're a prolific painter. Good question. I do make a lot of work. And I was known in undergraduate school for making a lot of work. One of the reasons I wanted to go to graduate school was I got tired of undergraduate fecklessness. Uh, I applied myself. I made a lot of work. But the reason I'm hesitating is that once I got launched in my memoir, that took a lot of time. And so... I have not made a lot of work in the last several years because so much of my time has gone into being an author of creative nonfiction. So I discovered through this process of writing and publishing and promoting my book that I have a new vocation as author of creative nonfiction. So 
that's part of my life now. And that takes away from the time that I could spend making a lot of art. That said, I do make art. And I made art in the summer. I made art in the fall. And um, one of my pieces that I made in the fall is going to be turned into street banners uh, celebrating Paul Robeson as a distinguished graduate of Rutgers University. Oh, that's fabulous. That's fabulous. In your book, Olden Art School, what was that like in terms of exposing and talking honestly about you? I could not have done it without the mentorship of my agent, who's had a lot of experience in taking people like me from one kind of writing to another. So she really was my teacher in that. And it took me a couple of years to shift gears because one of, you know, one of the jobs of a historian is to get the reader to see through your eyes. But one of the jobs of the artist is to put it out there and let the reader or the viewer make her own meaning. So in that way, I had to bring my readers into my own subjective, my individual, me, Nell Painter's experience. So I wasn't generalizing about, say, being a black woman in art school. I wasn't speaking for more than just myself. And in order to make that alluring almost to a reader, I needed to go deep and to be honest and candid. My heart is kind of full as I'm talking to you. I'm not deifying you, but I really like you. And I'm here in my head thinking about what a rich, rewarding life that you have lived and will continue to live, and that you are your own person, and you do what you need to do for you, whether you're writing scholarly dissertations, or you're sitting in front of an easel. Yeah, and I really credit my parents for giving me what I now call ego strength to do some things that don't immediately or maybe never get appreciated widely, that don't get patted on the back. I, You know, I don't always have people saying how wonderful, how wonderful, and I've been able to do things just kind of going out on a limb. And that's what I mean about ego strength. I would have to assume that you impart all that or have imparted that to your students over the years. I hope so. One of my strengths as a, a history teacher, that is somebody advising dissertations, was holding them to certain standards of, of thoroughness and rigor. And I think if I were to teach art, which I've only done once back at Princeton, I would get students to do that as well, not pretending that there's, there's some rules about what is good art and what is bad art, but getting them to make their art more profound, not simply in terms of visual skill, but also intellectually, into the art criticism into what is being shown. Where does your art fit? What are your subjects? What is your process? Make more of it. I would say just make more of it. Yeah. And what is your art? Expressionism? Is it landscapes? Is it portraits? 
do you have an, a particular affinity for one over another? I have made a lot of self-portraits because I'm a very handy motif. I, <laughs> you know, you talked about modeling and taking your clothes off. I don't take my clothes off, but I do use myself as a subject a lot. Um, I also use uh, historical images. Well, we've run out of time, but to say that I enjoyed this conversation, like again with the gushing here, um, is a huge understatement. I feel really honored and blessed to have gotten to know you, Nell, and I really find you incredibly inspirational. We're, you know, we're, we're of a similar age, and I think that you have really inspired me, and thank you for who you are, Nell Painter. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for the compliments, and thank you for the conversation, Sandy. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.